through most of chapter 14 last week, but I'll just kind of do a brief recap and then into chapters 15 and 16. We're in the section of Revelation. Chapter 13 talked about the three enemies to God's people. So there's the dragon, of course, Satan. There's the sea beast and the land beast. The sea beast represents Rome. The land beast represents Rome as well, but is seen as an individual who's trying to prop up the first beast in order to receive worship. And when you transition out of that into chapter 14, you see the redeemed church of God, God's people that haven't bowed the knee to Rome and that haven't given in, standing triumphant, singing a what John calls a new song. There are three messages from three angels, and then it concludes with what's described as a harvest. So let's go ahead and see where we are as far as the slides. Okay, Revelation 14. I'm going to read verses 6 through 13. It says, Then I saw another angel flying overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory. Because the hour of judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon, the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, pour full strength into the cup of his anger. And he'll be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angel and in the presence of the lamb. And the smoke of their torments goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice saying from heaven, right. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the spirit. They may rest from their labors and their works do follow them. So. And this will be small on these few first slides. Sorry. But the first angel proclaims an eternal gospel. And it's just basically trying to call the nations to repent. Those who've suffered at the hand of, well, what's going to be the persecution or the retribution from God. And they followed the beast and received his mark. And the message to them is there's an eternal gospel to receive. And so you need to repent. The message from the second angel is in verse number eight. Babylon is fallen. And Babylon here represents what nation or what empire? Rome, the Romans. So he's already referred to the opposition of God's people in several ways. It's been Egypt. It's been Sodom. It's been the great city. And now he mentions that Babylon has fallen. For those of you trying to figure out the worksheet, there's nothing on the worksheet about any of this until chapter 15. So just for now, some of y'all are looking like, where is all this coming from? All right. This is just a recap from last week to walk us up to where we need to be. Angel number three says that those who receive the mark will receive God's wrath. And that's how it works out from verse number nine down through verse number 11. So this mark of the beast or this identification with the enemy will lead to individuals being punished. Remember in chapter 13, if you don't receive the mark, you can't buy or sell or enjoy any of the normal normal things in life. But it's turned around now. And those that have received that mark, they will receive God's wrath. And then there is a message about faithful endurance for the Christians and the blessing of dying in the Lord. So what John's trying to do throughout this entire section is encourage the Christians who are standing with Jesus to keep standing with him. There is an eternal gospel. You've laid hold on that. Remain faithful. Babylon is falling. And so those that have thrown in their lot with her will fall as well. And then, of course, the message from the third angel is the wrath of God is being poured out on Babylon. And so he calls the Christians there in verse 12 
to endurance and keep the commandments of God. And then probably one of the most famous verses in the book of Revelation is found in verse 13. I heard a voice from heaven saying, right, blessed indeed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the spirit, they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. So Christians that aligned with Jesus in the midst of this persecution, what might happen to them if they don't receive the mark? What is the beast going to try to do in the dragon? What might be their consequences for failing to fall in line with Rome? Heavy persecution, which would lead to what physically for them, potentially? Death. John's been saying that from the very beginning. Chapter 2 and verse 10, right? He says, remain faithful even in the face of death and you'll receive the crown of life. Now we're being told that there's a blessing attached to dying in the Lord and an individual's works will follow them. And so that's John's encouragement. Now let's go to the last part of 14, which is a scene John describes using an imagery of a harvest of sorts. Verse 14 down through verse 20. John says, then I looked and behold, there was a white cloud. Seated on the cloud was one like a son of man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud. Put in your sickle and reap for the hour to reap has come for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven and he, too, had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who had authority over the fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle. Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and the blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1600 stadia. All right. So the last thing John does is he says he sees somebody on a white cloud. Who is this on the white cloud and how do we know? Let me ask it another way. Who is this on the white cloud and how do we know it's Jesus? That's easy, right? All right. So how do we know? Son of man and what else? Verse 14. What is it? Crown. Yeah, Ms. Martha said a golden crown is on his head. This imagery goes back to Daniel 7, 13 and 14. Daniel says, I saw one like the son of man seated on the clouds that all nations and peoples, tongues and languages should serve him. Now John sees one like the son of man reigning. He has a sharp sickle in his hand and the angel comes announcing the end. And Jesus is to put his sickle into the earth and reap those who would be saved. So the time of harvest has come. Look at verse 15. Another angel came out of the temple calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, that's to Jesus, put in your sickle and reap for the hour to reap has come for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. Some people read verse five and their verse 15, excuse me, and they have a little bit of pause because you've got an angel telling Jesus to do something. It seems like this angel's commanding Jesus. But I think all this shows is that this entire idea of harvest, harvesting and reaping comes ultimately from God. And this isn't an end time judgment, though I do think It has shadows and echoes of what the end time judgment will be like It's dealing specifically with the judgment that was going to fall on the Romans shortly thereafter for persecuting God's people. And a part of this is Jesus throwing in his sickle in order to reap. And Jesus talks about this in other places. Go to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, Jesus is talking about the end of the the world and he talks about the wheat and the tares. You remember that? And he tells this parable to his disciples in verse 24 down through verse 30. 
and they don't really understand it all together. But then he explains it. So the parable of the weeds and the tares is one of the ones that Jesus explains. Look at Matthew 13 and verse 36. It says, then Jesus left the crowds and went into the house and his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, the one who sows the good seed is the seed of man, the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age and the reapers are the angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The son of man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all that causes sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into a fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has an ear, let him hear. So in Matthew 13, Jesus says, hey, let the wheat and the tares grow together and God's going to separate in the end. And I think that's some of what you see John describing in Revelation chapter 14, though he's talking about the immediate and temporal judgment of Christians and Romans. The son of man is to throw in his sickle and to reap and he gathers out of that those that are righteous. And then there's an angel who's going to describe putting his sickle in. Look at verse 18, Revelation 14, 18. Another angel came out of the altar. The angel who has authority over the fire, he called with a loud voice to the angel who had a sharp sickle. He says, put in your sickle, gather the clusters from the vine of the earth for its grapes are ripe. And that angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grapes out. And so there is this idea of the Romans are being gathered out of the earth in order to be trampled under God's wrath. And verse 20 says the wine press was trotting outside the city and the blood flowed from the wine press as far as a horse's bridle for 1600 stadia. John symbolically describes those who will be the Subject of God's wrath. This happens a lot in the Old Testament. This imagery, Isaiah 63 and verse 3, Lamentations 1 and verse 15, and Joel 3 and verse 13. The blood here is said to be as deep as the bridle of horses and extends to the breadth of the land. And all John is saying is these individuals who have persecuted God's people are going to reap what? They've, they're going to reap what they've sown and they're going to be ultimately destroyed and killed. And so that's the way John describes it. So chapter 14, the redeemed sing a new song. They're blessed, the 144,000. The message from the three angels, there's an eternal gospel. Babylon has fallen. God's going to pour out his wrath on his enemies. And then this imagery of the harvest to come is God pouring out his wrath on his enemies. All right, let's talk about how to hear and keep Revelation 14. What we've done at the end of each chapter or the end of each section is to say, here's how this applies to us and our lives. And let's do that with chapter 14 before we launch into chapter 15. Here's number one. Look up and see the lamb. In chapter 13, John talks about the beast, the dragon and the other beast. But look at Revelation 14 and verse one. Revelation 14, 1, John says, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him the 144,000. In our lives, we need to do a better job of trying to look up and see the Lamb in the midst of hardship and difficulty. What does the Hebrew writer say in Hebrews 12 and verse 2? We're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, but we're to look unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Be looking for the Lamb. Look in the midst of our lives, even sometimes in the midst of our lives, and say, where is the where is the son of God in all of this? What is Jesus doing in my life? Have eyes that look up and see the lamb repeatedly in the revelation. What John will do, he's going to do it in 15 one as well. He's going to say, then I looked and I saw and he's always directing his gaze heavenward and it changes everything. There's persecution. There's turmoil. There's the beast. Christians can't buy and sell. They're being slain. They're being killed. And then John says, but then I looked and that changes everything about his life and it'll change everything about your life and mine. 
whatever we're facing, if we do this, if we purposely change our trajectory and pivot and say, but then I looked. I looked in the scriptures. I remember the promises of God. Find ways to turn and look for the lamb. Here's number two. Sing the new song. That's Revelation 14. And verse number three says they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures in the Bible. And you see this a lot in the Psalms, Psalm 96 and some others. It'll say individuals were singing a new song. It's not about new lyrics. A new song in the Bible is saying they're typically singing some old truths with new significance. And it often follows individuals coming out of great persecution and hardship. And when they come out of that, the Bible will typically describe it this way. They praise God and they sang a new song. There are songs that we sing in the songbook that maybe you've sung your whole life and then something's happened. You just think about different songs. I'm thinking about songs with hardship, but also songs of gladness. I forget the title of the song right off the top of my head, but how sweet to hold a newborn baby. We just sing that song. But when you have a baby or a grandchild, it changes the significance. When you've been through hardship and you hear songs about heaven, it changes from just getting through the song so we can get to the next part of worship to I really longed for when the role is called up yonder. These Christians are being persecuted. They're suffering hardship. John says they sing a new song. And in our lives, we should sing a new song because the lyrics will change in our lives as our hardship deepens and maybe our joy too. make Revelation 14, four and five describe you. Make sure that's true. It says there that these individuals didn't defile themselves with women. They were virgins. This is just a way of saying they were pure and holy and they followed the lamb wherever he went. And our lives should be described as following the lamb wherever he goes. In their case, that meant even all the way through death, they were willing to be killed for their faith. Remember that justice is coming. The Christians here being persecuted and they're reminded that one day justice and the harvest is coming. And so we should be prepared for that. And then lastly, view view death like a Christian. All right. Revelation 15. Chapter 15 builds on chapter 14 and then prepares us for what we'll see in chapter 16. Chapter 14 begins with this word of praise. But now in chapter 15, we'll see this song that Christians sing. You know, chapter 15, even if you haven't studied Revelation with us this quarter or maybe read it in a long time. There's some familiar themes in chapter 15, and I hope it'll help us as we work through it. So let's read Revelation 15 verses one, one and two to start. John says, then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing. Seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last for with them, the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. And also those who had conquered the beast and his image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. All right. So John says he saw another sign in heaven. He said this previously in chapter 12. John saw a sign. There was a woman with a child and all of that. And that was about the church being persecuted and what God was going to do to catch the child up to heaven and also keep the church pure. But now John sees another sign. This sign is different. He sees one of the seven angels with seven last plagues and those plagues contain the wrath of God. All right. When you think of plagues in the Bible, what do you think about? What do you typically go back to when you think about plagues in the Bible? Old Testament specifically. Egypt. What happens with the plagues in Egypt? What happens? What does God do with the plagues in Egypt? Finally breaks Pharaoh. Yeah. So he sends these plagues. How many of them? Ten. Yeah. So the first nine plagues are designed to get Pharaoh's attention and maybe he's going to let the children of Israel go. And every time, what does Pharaoh do? 
He hardens his heart. Just see the scene. Go back in your mind to the book of Exodus. God's people are being persecuted. They cry out to God for relief. God raises up a leader in Moses and says, I'm going to give you deliverance. Moses and Aaron go into the palace of Pharaoh. Nine plagues continually. Let my people go. Pharaoh, part, he promises partial repentance. I'm going to let him go. He never does. And then finally, what does God do? God sends the final plague and that plague eventually allows him to push the people out of Egypt and then to the Red Sea. How were God's people delivered in Egypt? What happened after the 10th plague? How do they get out of Egypt and get on their way to the promised land where God would have them to go? They went through what? They went through the Red Sea. That's Exodus chapter 14. And right after the Red Sea, Exodus 15, what do they do? They they sing a song. Yeah, and so here we have it in Exodus 15 or Revelation 15. It says, John saw another sign in heaven. There's plagues coming and with them the wrath of God is finished. And then in verse two, I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire and those who conquered the beast and its image standing before the sea with harps of God in their hand. In verse three, Revelation 15, three, what are they doing? They're singing the song of Moses and the lamb. So John builds on this idea. Hey, you've come out of great persecution. Just like the people in Israel in the days of Egypt, they sang a song. Christians are being persecuted mightily. They come out of persecution. They sing a song, not just any song, but he calls it the song of Moses and the lamb. What does it mean that these are the seven last plagues? What do you think that means? Because this isn't the book of Revelation. There's more to come. So what does John mean when he says there are seven last plagues? In verse two. Of the Roman Empire. Yeah, this these will be the complete plagues, the wrath of God. Everything you read after this, even into chapter 20, when it says that the beast and the dragon will be thrown into the eternal fire. All of those are in response to these seven last plagues. This is the complete wrath of God. Go to Exodus chapter 11 and notice the same thing happens with Pharaoh. There are nine plagues. And then when God gets ready to give the tenth one, notice what he says in Exodus 11 and verse one. The final plague. So the ninth plague is darkness in chapter 10. And then the Lord said to Moses, yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. After that, afterwards, he will let you go from here. And when he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. And so the same idea is present here. John sees the last plague coming. And after this, God's adversaries will get the picture. God's wrath is described as being complete in verse two. It's finished. These seven angels have God's wrath sealed and complete. And they will accomplish what God intends against the Romans. What does the sea represent, you think, in Revelation 15 and verse number number two? He says, I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass. What do you think that represents? Revelation 15 two. John says, I see I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. And also those who conquered the beast in his image, they stood beside or on the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. So what is that about the sea of glass? What was that? Um, no, but I think they're they're seeing a heavenly vision of what's taking place above them. It's not heaven. What where did the beast come from initially in Revelation 13 out of the what? Out of the sea. And now they're standing on top of what was described as the place where the beast reigned and they're triumphant over the beast. And so John sees them. And then verse number two, sometimes this comes up in verse two. It says that they had harps in their hands. Um, I'll just briefly say in Revelation, there's in chapter five, chapter 14, and also in chapter 15, the mention of harps. And you start talking to people about worship in the new covenant and they say, well, they had harps in the book of Revelation. And I don't 
I think we need to be careful of how we use the book of Revelation. Instrumental music is never going to be authorized by what you find in the book of Revelation any more than us. We're going to have bowls with God's wrath pouring it on people's heads. Okay, and so the book of Revelation is a symbolic book, but it doesn't say that anybody played the harps. The harps here are described as a symbolic way of referencing the song that these individuals sing. Every time you see harps in Revelation. Revelation 5, 8, Revelation 14, 3 and 4. And even here in chapter 15, 2 and 3, don't see what you think you want to see. Just read the text and notice it never says anything about playing. It immediately follows that individual saying. And the harps are just a metaphorical way of describing the praise, the melodious praise that they offer to God. And so don't read into the text. See what John's saying is there. And he finds these individuals praising God. All right. Verses three and four, Revelation 15, three. These are the lyrics that they sing. They sing a song of Moses and the servant of God and the song of the lamb saying, great and amazing are your deeds. O Lord God, the almighty, just and true are your ways. O king of the nations who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name for you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you for your righteous act have been revealed. And so the redeemed sing the song of Moses and the lamb. Why is it called the song of Moses? We get why it's called the Song of the Lamb. They follow the Lamb wherever he goes. That's Revelation 14, 4 and 5. But why is this song also called the Song of Moses? We were just talking about it a moment ago. They were delivered. And when you read this song alongside Exodus 15, the lyrics are almost parallel. They sing a song of deliverance. They praise God for who he is. And the lyrics contain things about who God is. Notice what they say in this song in verses three and four. They praise God as the almighty God who has done great deeds. Um, He remembers the people on earth. And you remember earlier in chapter 13 and verse four, those who worship the beast said, who can fight against the beast? Well, now here's the answer. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the almighty. Just and true are your ways, O king of the nations. They call him the king of the nations. His ways are just and true. Who did the Romans think was the king of the nations? Who did the Romans believe was in charge of the world? Who did they worship? The Romans, the the emperors, the Caesars, they worship Domitian. But now these Christians sing that God is the true king of the nations who won't fear your name. God's name is said to be worthy of fear and of glory. He's the one all the nations should worship. And when they see his actions revealed. So many in the world don't appreciate who God is now. But the Bible teaches that eventually they will. So he's described as being worthy of glory and of fear. And there is this pattern throughout the book of Revelation. I hope you notice it. When do people sing songs in the book of Revelation? When do they typically break out in praise throughout this book? With what? Somebody said it, I think. In good times. In good times, yes. And when they see God doing something in their world. So the first time is when Jesus opens the scroll. Revelation 5, 8 through 10. After nobody else can open the scroll, a lamb appears who appears as if he's been slain. Revelation 5, 8 through 10, they sing a song of praise. The seventh trumpet is blasted. And in Revelation 11, 16 through 18, they break out in praise toward God. Those standing on Mount Zion in Revelation 14, 1 through 3, when the lamb appears, it says that they broke out and they were singing a new song. And now here in Revelation 15, 3 and 4. So praise always follows the appearance of the divine or deliverance from hardship and persecution. What does this teach us about our worship today? What does this tell us about the way we should worship God based on the way they often responded after hardship and praise to God? What does it teach us about our worship? 
how will our worship be enhanced if we look at what happens in the book of Revelation? Tom said they praised in good times. We see this pattern. They come out of persecution. They sing a song. Jesus is revealed as being the one who can open the seal. They sing a song. What does this teach us about the way we should worship God and what will we do to enhance our worship based on what we find in Revelation? Same pattern in what way? Recognize his power and his blessings. Yes. We're going to be we'll be persecuted. We need to see it and recognize it. Yes. Sometimes I talk to people that have been members maybe of the church for a long time and they start thinking, well, you know, our worship is kind of. It's kind of bland. We do the same things all the time over and over. And the routine can kind of lull some people to sleep. What's going to enhance our worship, though, what's going to help us to be better worshipers is not doing new things. It's not adding to what God's already said. It's drawing deeper into the love of God, appreciating the deliverance we've received and then allowing that to press us into greater and more enhanced worship on our part because we give more of ourselves to God. Notice Psalm 18. It's one of the longest psalms that David pens. I don't want to read the psalm. I just want you to notice something right at the beginning of this psalm. Psalm 18. And in your Bible, there are these headings above the psalms. And notice Psalm 18 and what it says about David when he wrote this psalm. Psalm 18, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord. When did David write this psalm? According to this heading, he addressed the words of this song to the Lord on the day when God did what? Delivered him from all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. Now you go back and read first Samuel and see all that David was facing with Saul. And he pens one of the longest psalms in praise. What's going to help your worship? What's going to help my worship is when we appreciate how much God's delivered us from. I know we know in the general sense God's rescued us from sin. That's true. But in our personal lives, when we realize what we've been redeemed from, the natural response to that is to break out in psalm and in song. And that's what you see over and over again in the book of Revelation. Individuals are delivered and the natural reflex, the outlet that God's wired us with to respond to him in those times is a song of praise. And that's what you see these individuals doing in Revelation chapter 15. What was that? Yeah. Yeah. A heart of gratitude. And a lot of these songs are just that they're praising God for who he is, what he's done and showing how much individuals appreciate God. Let's go through the rest of Revelation 15 and notice verse five through eight. After they sing the song, John says, after this, I looked and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened, And out of the sanctuary came seven angels with the seven plagues clothed in pure, bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of wrath, the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with the smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one can enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. All right. So John says he saw seven plagues. Look at verse five, though. Where did John look and see this coming from? Why mention that the seven last plagues come from heaven? Why does John say that? He says, after this, I looked and the sanctuary, of the tent of witness in heaven was open. And out of that sanctuary up above the seven angels with the seven plagues clothed in pure, bright linen with golden sashes around their chest. Why does John mention that these seven last plagues come from heaven? Yeah. So earlier in Revelation, chapter six, nine and ten, Chuck's alluding to Christians that have been killed for following Jesus. They're praying and they're saying, God. Avenge our blood on these individuals who've killed us. And I believe chapter 16 is a part of the answer to that prayer. But here's what we're going to see in chapter 16 that we haven't seen before. 
when the trumpets were blasted, when the seals were opened and all of that, before God's punishment was on the natural forces around, and he would say something like a third of the people were destroyed. And there was this opportunity for individuals to repent. In chapter 16, the judgment of God that's going to be poured out will contain no mercy whatsoever. And sometimes even Christians, you might read a text like this and it gives us a little pause. It makes us uncomfortable that this kind of punishment would be carried out and that Christians would even pray for it to happen. And I think in view of that, John's saying, just so you know, these bowls of wrath, they came from heaven itself. God signed off on this punishment against the Romans, and we need to accept and embrace that. God is not who he says he is if he's not just and completely just. Now, God's punishment does include opportunities for people to repent, but eventually that time runs out. James 2.13 says there is a judgment coming that is without mercy. And individuals will be judged with it. And so John leads off by saying these seven last and final plagues, individuals won't come back from this. And we'll see in chapter 16 that the wrath that's poured out, these individuals don't even want to repent. But we need to see that it comes from God. It's not these Christians taking vengeance into their own hands, but it's coming from God. The seven bowls are filled with the wrath of God. God is love. People teach us. People say that a lot. First John four and verse eight says that. But God is also what? According to the Bible, God is love. But he also gets what? Jealous. Jealous. What else? Justice. Justice. Does God get angry? Question. Trivia question. How often does God get angry? According to the Bible. What are y'all thinking? Like once a month or the Psalm seven says God is angry with the wicked every day. Listen, we say this. The Bible doesn't say this. I know what we mean when we say it. God hates the sin, but loves what? And I appreciate that. I'm just telling you that's sometimes hard to mesh with what you find in the Bible, because you can go right out here on the bypass and you can sit out there all day. You're never going to see sin just strutting down the street like, oh, there goes adultery. Oh, there goes dishonesty. You're not going to see that. Sin is always attached to human beings. And so God does hate sin, loves the sinner, but also hates when sinners sin. And his wrath is poured out on individuals who disobey and rebel. And that's just what the Bible tells us. So this divorce and this idea, God doesn't love everything that everybody does. And Revelation 16 is going to make that plain. God wants every sinner to come to repentance. But while individuals are in rebellion to God, God's wrath is toward them. Psalm 7, verse 11, God's angry with the wicked every single day. And so we need to appreciate that as well. The seven bowls are filled with the wrath of God, and this is going to come down on those individuals that are disobedient. And then the last thing John sees is the glory of the smoke fill the place where God dwells in this in the sanctuary. Look at verse eight. The sanctuary is filled with the smoke from the glory of God. And from his power, no one can enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Um, several times in the Bible, this kind of thing happens. We see God's glory fill a place. In Exodus 19 and verse 18, God descends on Mount Sinai and his glory overshadows this. And there's thunder and lightning. And they tell Moses, you go up and talk to God, because if we talk to him, we believe we'll die. God's glory fills the tabernacle in Exodus 40 and verse 34. It happens again when Solomon builds the temple in 1 Kings 8. And then when Isaiah sees a heavenly vision in Isaiah chapter 6, it says the train of his robe and that glory and smoke filled the temple. But there's something else I want you to notice. Look at Revelation 15 and verse 8. Right before these bowls of wrath are poured out, it says the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And what does the last part tell us about entering God's presence at this time? No one could do what until what happened? Seven plagues were finished. 
imagine being a Christian in the first century. Now, we're reading Revelation. We're reading straight through. You flip a page and, hey, there's deliverance. God's coming. But imagine being a Christian and you won't receive this mark that aligns you with Rome and they take your children. They confiscate your goods. You've seen your parents and your loved ones burned alive and you're praying to God and you're begging God to help you. And it seems like heaven is silent. What John says at the end of Revelation 15 is when God gets ready to administer justice, it'll have his undivided attention. He won't do it. Nobody's coming in. Nobody's going out until God takes care of business. And this would have been a message of hope to these Christians. God was aware. God was concerned so much so that when he got ready to deal with the Romans in chapter 16 with the bowls of wrath, he was going to stop doing everything else, so to speak, quote unquote, so that he could punish these individuals that were persecuting his people. It says to us in our hardship, God is concerned more than concerned. He's involved and we have his undivided attention when we suffer as well. And that's what these Christians enjoyed in Revelation 15. Nobody could enter. Nobody could go out until the seven bowls of wrath were poured out. All right. Chapter 16. Any questions on 15, by the way, and the song that they sing and about the seven bowls of wrath? I wouldn't say that, but some people do. What I would tell you, Chuck, is some people say these seven bowls of wrath fast forward and they're talking about the end time. These seven bowls are about the final judgment. I think in the end of chapter 16, we're going to see something that says these seven bowls of wrath were about the Romans. However, I do think what we see in these seven bowls of wrath are true about the final judgment, like God's wrath will finally be poured out. What, the seven bowls of wrath themselves? Right, right. We don't know. I don't know what you I didn't understand. But you said when is the final judgment? I'm saying I don't know. Got you. Right, right. Yeah, but so some people think, Chuck, that these seven bowls of wrath have to wait until the final coming. I'm saying, and we'll see this in chapter 16, these seven bowls of wrath are part of everything that happens in the book of Revelation. And I think these seven bowls were poured out on the Romans in the lifetime of these Christians. And he's going to talk about it at the end of chapter 16. So let's just read chapter 16, one through seven, and then we'll we'll talk about maybe our explanation will make it make more sense to us. But Revelation 16, one through seven, John says, then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels. Go and pour out on earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel angel went and he poured out his bowl on the earth and harmful and painful sores came on the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshiped his image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea and it became like the blood of a corpse and every living thing that died that was in the sea. Third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water. And they became blood. And I heard an angel in charge of the water say, just and holy are you. Well, just are you, O holy one who is and was for you brought these judgments for they've shed the blood of saints and prophets and you have given them blood to drink. It's what they deserve. And I heard the altar say, yes, Lord God, the almighty, true and just are your judgments. All right. So here we go with the seven bowls of wrath. The bowls are poured out on God's enemies. That's important. Just like the plagues. You remember we talked about the plagues in Egypt. What do you know about the plagues from the book of Exodus? How were they administered? Who suffered when the plagues came out in the days of Moses? The Egyptians and not who? Israelites. Several times in the plagues, especially like with the darkness, it'll say there was light in Goshen, but not in the houses of the Egyptians or all of the cattle of the Egyptians died, but not that that belonged to the Israelites. John's making a similar distinction here. Look at verse two. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth and harmful pains and sores came on who? Which people? 
the ones that had the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. So part of this had to be fulfilled in the first century because people in this first century world were those that were receiving the mark that they aligned with the Romans, whether that was a literal mark or just some kind of allegiance that they pledged to Rome. But this bowl comes out in the first century time because it's for these people that have the mark. So there's going to be wrath at the end of the world. Revelation 16 will apply in some way to people at the end of time when judgment comes. But right here in the book of Revelation is dealing with individuals who've linked themselves to the emperor of Rome. And this first bowl talks about. Let me just get to it. Yeah, the first bowl talks about sores that are going to come on people that are aligned with the beast. Here's the second one. The second bowl talks about the fact that the sea becomes like blood. The blood of a dead corpse and everything in the sea died. Which plague does this remind you of from the book of Exodus? What happens in turning the water into the blood? Exodus chapter seven, verses 20 and 21. So the second bowl gets poured out. Verse three of Revelation 16. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea. It became like the blood of a corpse and every living thing died that was in the sea. Third angel pours out his bowl. Verse four into the rivers and the springs of water. They become like blood. And then listen to this message in verse five. God is praised. Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was. You brought these judgments. They shed the blood of the saints and prophets. You've given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. We talked a lot about retribution in the book of Revelation. And is it right that Christians desire God's justice? Here it is. They're praising God and they're saying this is exactly what your enemies deserve for your wrath to be poured out on them for their rebellion against you. And then verse four or bowl number four, verse eight, it says the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat. They cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent and give him glory. So the fourth angel in verse eight pours out the bowl. People are scorched with the sun like fire. The fifth angel pours out his bowl verses 10 and 11. And there's darkness, just like the plagues of Egypt. But at the end of these two verses that deal with the fourth and fifth bowl, what does it say about the people that are suffering? The end of verse nine and also the end of verse 11. What do we learn about them? They didn't repent and give God glory. So people read passages like this and they're saying, what kind of God would punish people like this? Or what kind of God would send people to eternal condemnation? Why would God do this? Why wouldn't these people repent even in the face of all of this hardship, all of this loss, people dying all around them, bodies with sores and all the things that John describes? Why does it say they still didn't repent and give God glory? You would think this kind of thing would get somebody's attention. I told you the first time the judgments come with the seals and with the various trumpets, the judgments were partial. This time it's complete. You're not going to read anything in Revelation 16 about it only affects a third or part of the people. It's saying all of those that align with the beast are completely destroyed. But why do these people still not repent even after they've suffered so much? They're still angry with God. They want their way. Why else wouldn't people repent? They want their way. They're angry with God. What else? Pride. Is it possible for a person's heart to become so hard that there's nothing anybody can do to get them to change their mind and repent? 
It's possible. And God will let us do it. The Bible talks about God sending people a strong delusion who want to believe a lie. If you want to believe a lie, God says, well, I'll just keep put. You can just go that way. God wasn't keeping them from repenting. But God was saying, if you want to go that way, I'll give you a push in that direction. If you want to rebel, God allows you to. These people are just like those at the end of Revelation 9, verse 20 and verse 21. It says in the midst of all of this hardship, they still didn't repent. And the Bible talks about people's conscience being seared with a hot iron and they won't change their ways and they won't repent. Yeah, that's right. And Hebrews six has been like a difficult passage for a lot of people. It's impossible. What does it mean? It's impossible. And I think what you're hitting on is right that they won't. God always allows people to change. But the standards are going to be the same. Turn away from sin and turn to God. If you don't want to do that, it'll be impossible for you to repent. There's no new evidence coming. God's not going to change the requirements and people that don't want to do that. It's going to be impossible for them to change. Okay. The fifth bowl is darkness. We talked about that. Let's read verses 12 down through verse 16. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates. Its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on that he may not go about naked and be exposed. And they assemble them at a place that in the Hebrew is called Armageddon. So here's the sixth bowl. Their great river Euphrates is dried up. And throughout the Bible, this idea of the great river Euphrates being dried up just deals with God coming in judgment on his enemies. You might write down Isaiah 11:15, Isaiah 44, 27 and 28. Jeremiah 50 and verse 38 and then Jeremiah 51 and verse 36. All of those passages in the Old Testament, when God's coming in judgment on nations, he'll say, I'm going to dry up the Euphrates. The Euphrates was typically viewed as a place of protection. When God dries it up, he says, nothing's going to stop you. Stop me from punishing you. This scene of frogs coming out of their mouths is about the false trinity, the dragon and the two beasts. And they're receiving their punishment. And then in verse 15, Jesus says, behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on that he may not go about naked and be exposed. I don't think this is Jesus's final coming. This is his coming and judgment on the Romans. And Jesus does say in the end he'll come like a thief. But his judgment against the Romans would be like a thief. What does Jesus mean when he says in any passage? First Thessalonians five, Matthew 24, second Peter three. I come like a thief. What does that mean about his coming? It won't be what? It won't be announced. So as soon as somebody says, I know the judgment day is coming because of X, what, we sh- what should we be saying? No. no, that couldn't be right. Somebody said, well, there's a lot of wars going on. I know we're getting close to the end. Couldn't be. Couldn't be. Jesus says we don't know. If you think, you know, that's probably an indication that that's not the time. Jesus doesn't want us to be caught off guard, though. And so look at what he prescribes in verse 15. Blessed is the one who just stays awake, keeping his garments on that he may not go about naked and be seen and be exposed. And so instead of watching the clock, Jesus says, watch your character. Instead of looking at the calendar, Jesus says, just make sure your heart is right. And then whenever he comes, you'll be ready. Forget about what's going on in the world. Forget about the turmoil between the nations. If you live right, whenever Jesus comes, you'll be ready because there are two things nobody knows. One, when Jesus is coming back. And the second is what? When you'll die, because when you die, that's the end for you as far as you're concerned and as far as I'm concerned. So it really doesn't matter when Jesus comes, quote unquote, you'll be with him or against him. And so his admonition is forget about looking for signs. 
Make sure that you keep your, your soul pure and right in my sight so you won't be caught off guard. And then there's the mention of the Battle of Armageddon. I don't know what you've heard about this, but here's the only verse in the Bible that talks about it. I know every time around a certain time of year, different magazines want to write about the Battle of Armageddon. But this verse has been the cause of much debate and confusion. What I'll say as we bring the class to a close on this is. John uses a term, the Battle of Armageddon, and it comes from, he transliterates it from Hebrew, the Battle of Megiddo. And throughout the Old Testament, battles happened in this area of Megiddo with Deborah and Barak in Judges 4 and 5. There's, that's where Josiah was killed in 2 Kings 23 and also 2 Chronicles 35. John doesn't, if you read it, John doesn't mention a battle here because there's not going to be one. God's going to totally destroy the opposition. He just brings this old terminology of where a lot of battles in ancient Israel were fought. And he says it's going to be just like that. But this time, God's people will come out victorious because the lamb will totally obliterate his enemies. All right. Thanks for a good Bible class. We're out of time. We'll finish with the hearing and keeping of Revelation 15 and 16 next week. But thanks for listening.